All right, well, let's dive in, shall we? We have some ground to cover. Are you all ready? All right, so today I want to take us to the powerful and well-known passage in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. What are we going to be talking about? The Great Commission. You guys are already on top of it. Um, this is the encounter that the disciples have. Most, if you've been in church for any time, you know what it is. Jesus gives a charge to the, or to the disciples, his people that he'd been pouring in, to, to go and make disciples. This is what he does. And uh, the last three weeks leading up to today, today being the fourth week, we've taken time to talk about uh, within this big series that we are talking about Jesus in, in, in so many different ways. But we said, what are some of the most pointed things that Jesus said? What were some of the most uh, really impactful, I've been using the word weighty things that Jesus said? And the first week we talked about how he said, repent and believe the good news. It was the first thing he said for us to go and do after he announced his kingdom. Second week, Jesus, or, uh, Jesus said, go and be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then last week, we looked at the greatest commandment. Whenever he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor. And we, of course, emphasized um, the second part of that and, and loving our neighbor and what that looks like. And today, we, we look at this Great Commission thing. And, 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 and here's the thing. I say this every week because I want you to hear it, but Jesus said, everything Jesus said is life-giving. Everything that Jesus said is, in, is intended to shape who we're becoming. But there are some things that Jesus said that were very significant, that were intended to carry a different kind of weight. And when it comes to us um, thinking about even these four statements we've looked at, they shape so much of our theology, so much of our missiology, which means what, what are we doing as the church? Who, what are we doing as followers of Jesus? Because he's constantly inviting us. And I want you to catch this today. Jesus is constantly inviting you to love like he loved, to live like he lived, and to do what he did. That's what he's inviting us to. So last week, I remember I, I said, Jesus didn't call us to the life that we should, should live. He calls us to a life that we could live. He's not inviting us into a life of obligation. He's inviting us into a life of opportunity. And the opportunity is to go and live the life that he's called us to live, which will be full of life. This is what he's calling us to as an opportunity. So the Christian life, it's an invitation to live like Jesus. So Great Commission falls into this category. How do we live like Jesus? Because he says these words, and we'll get to them in a second, where he says, I want you to go and teach them everything that I taught you. <laughs> go do what I did. Go teach them what I taught you. So Matthew 28, verse 16, let's get into it, and we'll go somewhere with it. All right, here we go. Then the 11, because now there's only 11, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, which is interesting, and we won't talk about today. <laughs> then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All right, so he says, go and make disciples of all nations. If you know anything about the word disciple, disciple means learner. And Jesus, when he began his public ministry at age 30, he gets, this, he gets this big following of people that immediately start following him. And he chooses 12 disciples, right? He chooses 12 to go and learn from him everything that he was doing. And this is who he's talking to. So he says, hey, I want you to go and make disciples like I just discipled 
you. So back to verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right. So it's amazing to me that Jesus and his ministry, as he's ending his ministry on earth, he's about to ascend to the Father, that Jesus goes and he doesn't gather with the crowds, but he gathers, gathers with a few people that he's been pouring his life into, that he's been investing in for some time. And when it says that they met at the mountain that Jesus told him to go to, there's this understanding that this was a mountain that the disciples often gathered together. This was a place that they knew that he would pray with them often. Have you ever read the verse where he says, you want on the mountainside to pray? I'm not sure if it was the same mountainside every time, but I think there was something about this place that they knew exactly where to go because probably they had had a lot of intimate moments where Jesus was pouring his life into them. And so they show up, and this is a weighty moment, a moment that matters, a moment where Jesus is telling them is very important, and he instructs them to go and to make disciples, to teach them everything that I taught you. Now, Jesus doesn't do this for the sake of do this because it's a law or it's a command or I'm pulling a power chip out on you here. He's actually, once again, I want us to get this. He's inviting us into a life to live like he lived, to love like he loved, to do what he did. And he's saying, if you do this, you're actually going to experience all the things that I want to give you, all the love that I want to give you, all the life I want to give you, all the breakthrough I want to give you, all the promises I want to give you, this, this is, I'm just showing you how to live in such a way to experience what I'm promising. So let me talk about this in a different language for a second, uh, to talk about this idea of discipleship, if you will. Um, many of you know what ROI is, right? Anybody, what's that mean? Everybody knows. Um, that was, I asked you what, what did Jesus, you know, I asked you what the Great Commission was, and there's like four voices. And I said, what's ROI? And everybody's like, return on investment. <laughs> anyway, so essentially it means this, right? If I give $10, uh, how much return am I going to get on my investment of $10? Will I get $12 back? Will I get $15 back? Will I get $20 back? Which who would not like that ROI, right? 100% return. I think most of us in our IRs are getting about, we give $10, we get about $10.80 back. You know what I'm saying? And uh, people get a lot of money, don't they? It's because they bring people their money and tell them, I need you to show me where I can get the best ROI on my money I'm giving you. So if that's you, please come help me with my $10.80 problem, right? Um, this ROA from a financial practice, uh, is, is, we understand it. We get it. But our life is always assessing this. You know that, right? Our life is always assessing um, how is this worth the investment. I heard, I heard a message one time that, that talked about discipleship from an ROI standpoint. It really helped a lot because I started thinking about it from a standpoint of like this. Like we have an investment of our time and our energy, right? And we're constantly asking ourselves, is this worth my time? Anybody ever ask that? Is this worth my energy? Is this worth me giving myself to this. It's not just about our money, right? Sometimes it's about our time. We find ourselves binge-watching old episodes of The Office, and we go, is this worth my time? And some of you are like, Michael Scott being an idiot is totally worth my time. 
Some of us have purchased dogs for a hefty price tag, right? And then they come into your house and they just pee all over your house and they chew up all your, all your shoes and whatever else you have worth money. And, and you say, oh, but it's so worth it. Why? <laughs> it's worth it because some things aren't about money on the return, are they? Some things are about all oh, the joy, all oh, the, 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 the love that was received, the, the cuddling with the puppy, whatever it is that's worth it to you that no matter what they do to your house, it's okay. And it's really a really good feeling, right? When you have time well spent or money well spent. You know, we took a family vacation recently and, and vacations are always more money and more time than you probably have to give. But for our family, it was worth it because we made memories and because it was uh, a special time of having fun together. And it was worth it is what we think. Um, when the return on the investment works, it's a great thing. Anybody ever done a project? And after you get done with the project, it was like, I can't believe how much time I spent on that, but it was so worth it. I, uh, I recently had a little project I'll show you. I, I was, for about two years, I've been telling Christy I was going to build a dining table. And uh, now the only thing with this big grand vision of mine was that I really don't know how to build. <laughs> and the one time I did build a table, it wasn't very good. And so I was like, all right, well, I kind of almost gave up on it. I was like, I'm not going to do this. We started looking at tables to go purchase. And then I woke up one morning with the fortitude, the commitment, the vision. I'm going to do this thing. Are you with me now? Anybody had this moment? Usually it doesn't work out. <laughs> but in this case, let me show you what I got here. So I started out with some old wood. And just, you know, wood you get out of semi-trailers. And um, anyway, sanded it down like crazy, sanded it down for days I sanded. Then I glued it together, uh, and then I went ahead and uh, stained and put through some legs on that thing, and then voila, I'm ready for, I'm ready for Thanksgiving meal for the ages, right? What do you guys think? <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, I spent a lot of time and a lot of energy and many, many trips to Lowe's because I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, no, that didn't work, and then I had to go back. And, uh, but it was worth the ROI was worth it, right? Like, because we love it and because it's fun and because I had a lot of fun doing it and now I, I can build stuff. <laughs> and the flip side of this is whenever you do something and it was not worth your time or money, it's the worst feeling in the world. Anybody ever spend $12 on a movie and you went, why did I just do that? Anybody went to a meal and made a bad choice and you just live with regret when the person next to you ordered the right thing. <laughs> My first car I bought was a 1987 Hyundai Excel. <laughs> now, here's the thing about that car. I didn't like it at all, but I could afford it. So I bought it. It had one windshield wiper that worked. It was the passenger side. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. And I finally realized this is not a good ROI. And I sold the thing and I bought a Ford Bronco, which was a good ROI. <laughs> I think Jesus understood this concept. He modeled a life that was about making the right investment. Uh, because we saw him constantly not just pour into the crowds, but he poured into a few. And we live in a culture, don't we, that values quantity over quality. And I know that's so cliche sounding, but we really do. We live in a culture that values numbers and mass 
We live, even in the church, right? The, the church culture in, in America is that we value crowds. We, the more people come to a church, the more we see it as it must be successful. The more people who listen to a podcast or who follow us on social media or whatever, that's how churches are finding value and success and significance in so many circumstances. It's not all churches. Anyone seen this, though, in the church world, right? And if you take it out of the church world and put it in your world, maybe it's not about numbers because maybe your measuring stick isn't about a crowd size, but maybe it's just about more money in the count or more, more jobs or more busyness or more activities or more projects or more complex. I mean, there's, it's usually a bigger something, isn't it? There's a numeric, there's a number there at some point where it's about having more. And here's the thing. What Jesus tells us is, listen, what I've taught you, I want you to go teach them. This is what he says to us. And the mode we see in his life is one in which he would sometimes separate himself from the crowd. Here's what I do want to say, though. The crowd was still important in Jesus' ministry. There was a purpose to the crowd in which he would sometimes minister to the crowd. He would sometimes teach the crowd. He would sometimes show the power of God to the crowd. But then he would retreat from the crowd. What did he do after he fed 15,000 with some bread and fish? A huge crowd. It says, that he, it says that he left the crowd, and he went and did what? He spent time with the Father, and then he spent time with his disciples. And he was, he was constantly, this was his rhythm in life. He was like, I'm going to do ministry, yes, but I'm going to retreat, and I'm going to make an investment in what really matters, because he knows where the good return, if you will, on investment was going to be found. Jesus showed that pouring your life into, other, into a handful of people is the best investment, that's where the best return is. And so we have to ask ourselves a question today. Am I living that way? Does my life reflect the way Jesus lived? Do I spend my time, my energy, my resources that sort of way? And I honestly don't know if we've all figured this one out. Uh, I, know, I know I have work to do. At times I do better than others, but the best... The best return is investing in a few. And, and I just believe we have to create an environment. We have to create an environment where people value this because what we're talking about today is discipleship. And that discipleship, the culture of discipleship, which is where true transformation happens. A lot of times when we think about discipling, learning, it gets into an educational sort of approach and we put it into a classroom in our minds. This is sort of like a classroom right now, isn't it? But listen, you can have the best teaching on Sundays. <laughs> but there's a, there's a part of transformation that will never happen from this sort of learning. There's, there's a type of learning that Jesus understood could only happen whenever people are investing in people and people are pouring into people. That, there, there, that there's, a, a, there's a part of what Jesus taught us and how he discipled that wasn't what a lot of us are choosing as a way to be discipled and how we think others are going to be discipled. We're, we're choosing sort of an educational classroom mindset that just is going to fall short. See, here's the thing. We live in a very individualistic society, don't we? I mean, there's... There's actually only so much, though, that you can learn on your own, just so you know. In fact, I think it's no surprise that the United States is, is statistically the most individualistic society 
culture in the world. I think we all could say, well, that's probably true. 80% of the world's population lives in a collectivist culture. 80%. Only 20% doesn't. America dominates most of that percentage. And here's the reason why. Because in the modern world, we've become less dependent on other people, especially in privileged societies. Do we live in a privileged society? In privileged society, we become less dependent on other people and therefore think we can take care of ourselves. And we actually love to have a lot of pride in the fact that we can pull, up our, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? That we take this pride and that we don't need anybody else. And so we think if we have enough money that we can reduce our collectivist mindset and seclude ourselves into an individualistic approach in life well, we can do it on our own. But I just want to tell you, when we learn in a community of disciples, pouring into each other, there's so much momentum and breakthrough. Because we are not wired to live, love, or even grow on our own. Discipleship isn't a process of learning simply in a classroom. Just so you know, Sunday teaching helps. Listening to podcasts help. Reading books help. But they cannot replace people investing in people. And that's what our culture has done. We've replaced people investing in people by consuming information. Are you with me now? So the challenge is this. The challenge is I would ask you and I would challenge you the same thing that Jesus said, be a discipler. Be someone who understands that the best investment you can make is in the lives of people. Where we're pouring ourselves out as Jesus did. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll put a few slides on the screen. But Jesus calls us to make disciples, right? And for many of us, we don't even know what that means. <laughs> We've actually thought, oh, the Great Commission is about going and reaching the nations. Partially. And so we put it on, a, on our international missions board at a church. You know what I'm talking about? Nothing wrong with that. It's just, that's not what it is. The Great Commission isn't a call to go evangelize the world. It's not exclusive from it. It includes that. But it's actually a holistic call to discipleship in which we are going to reach, baptize, and teach people everything that Jesus commanded. And so here we are, and we have this great commission, and we ask ourselves, for a lot of us, we don't, if I said, hey, go be a disciple, you're like, I don't know what to do. I, I, don't, I don't really understand how to disciple someone. And so um, I thought I'd give us four thoughts today, and I'm going to go through these rather quickly um, because they're pretty simple. Because discipling has been made into something that is more complicated than it is. It's for some of us, we think it's about having all the answers. Some of us, we think we got to get to a certain point. Let me just, let me just, let's just kind of break this down a little bit. First of all, the first thought is this. Discipleship is an invitation to a journey. Jesus, like I keep saying, didn't set up a classroom. He invited people to walk with him, didn't he? Think about the life that he had. Come walk with me. Let me share my life with you. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, it says this. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. 
we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Now, this is Paul speaking, but he's speaking about the ministry of Jesus, right? He's like, we didn't just share the gospel with you. We didn't just teach you the gospel, but we shared our lives with you as well. So this is why, just so you know, as like in ministry, I can teach hundreds, but I can only disciple a few. In your life, you can influence thousands, but you can only share your life with a few. Sometimes we think discipleship is linear. Like it's this one, two, three-step process, right? And we think, oh, you know, someone that I'm going to have someone disciple me. I want them to take me, you know, tell me their five steps. You know what I'm saying? So we, so we think it's like we're going to get a syllabus. You know, when you go to college, and they give you the syllabus. They're like, here's what you're going to learn, A, B, C, D. And then they go in that order, and then you know the date that they're going to be there. So if you're like, oh, I already got that, you don't have to show up for class that day, right? You know what I'm saying? But it wasn't like Peter, it wasn't like Peter started following Jesus, and she said, okay, here's, here's your syllabus, Peter. <laughs> I've been working on some stuff, and I'm going to, I'm going to pass it to you. It, it, Jesus does something different. He's like inviting them on a journey. So much of learning happens when you go on the journey in life with people. So the question is, who are you inviting on the journey with you. And because we live in an individualistic society, most of us haven't invited anyone on the journey with us. Discipleship is about inviting someone on the journey with you because discipleship takes time. It requires time. So one of the biggest hindrances to a culture of discipleship existing in a community of people is that the main thing that happens is people say, oh, Tim, I love what you're saying. It's so spot on. It's so good. But you don't understand. I just don't have the time. I don't have the time. I'm so busy. Everyone in this room feels busy. You are not alone. And it starts at a very young age. You know that? Grayson, church mascot. The other night, <laughs> the other night he was in a hurry he was so busy he was in a hurry and he's and he was in a hurry about something really funny he wanted to watch a movie and he wanted his sister Addie to get ready so they could watch a movie they want to get on the couch they want to get their pjs on he's in a hurry like and then he goes up to the bathroom she's in the bathroom getting ready he's like banging on the door Addie, hurry up he says you're not one of those girls that has to wash their face and stuff are you He was so in a hurry. And <laughs> we do this in life about the dumbest things. We get in a hurry about the dumbest things. That's the silliest things. And we rev ourselves up and we sacrifice the best investment. We invest in the wrong things. We invest in the things that feed ourselves. And here's a challenge to making disciples. So I would challenge you to look at your own life and ask yourself, where, where am I making an investment that's not a better investment than people? We have to get intentional. We have to get deliberate. We have to get serious about our time. Second thought, give what you have. Give what you have. The Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. In other words, whatever God has given you, 
Make sure you give that to someone else. The healthiest Christians, by the way, are the ones that receive from God and then give that away to somebody else. That's the healthiest Christian out there. The healthiest Christians has that flow happening in their life. Well, I've been given something and it's a gift. It's a gift for me that I can now go give to someone else. Jesus says, what I have taught you, what does he say in the, in the Great Commission? What I have taught you, now go teach to others. What I have given you, now go teach to others. Now go give it to others. You gotta give what you have. And a lot of people think, I don't have anything to give. A lot of people think, I, I, I don't, I'm not prepared. I don't have enough to give. And I'm just telling you, you have more to give than you can ever possibly understand. If you've been a Christian a week, you have stuff to give. You can give because you give what you have been given and you've been given a lot. You don't have to have all the answers. Discipleship is not a concept in which you have to know everything. But it's a concept of, hey, I might not know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but we can go figure it out together. So you get what you have. And the third thing, discipleship starts with encouraging. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'd love to disciple someone. So where's the sign-up sheet? I'd like to sign up and then you can partner with someone that I can bestow all my wisdom and knowledge on. Um, listen, we don't have a sign-up today. And, and I'm not making, I, sometimes a church, it's good to like create partnerships with people. And, but, but sometimes we overcomplicate it and we wait for someone else to do the work for us. And what I'm saying is, start encouraging someone. When I was a, when I became a youth, when I first started started to figure out how to be a pastor, uh, I became a youth pastor. And for a few years, I was in ministry, working in youth ministry, but then I became the head youth pastor. Put the hat on, was ready to go, put the fanny pack, I was good. But here's the thing, I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was doing all the time, but I knew this, I knew that I had to get, I had to get more serious about discipling young people and, and going deeper. All I'd done at this point was like make cool videos, you know, like create, I was like serving the student ministry, but now it's like, no, I'm leading the student ministry. It's different. And I remember God speaking to me in that season of my life. And it was just like, start encouraging them. Just start encouraging them. And I still have vivid memories of just going, like literally thinking of people and going, this is what I'm gonna say to them because this is true of them. And I walk up to him and say, hey, I just, want, I just had a thought about you. And, I, and then I would speak encouragement to him. And it was like, like, they couldn't believe it was happening almost. And some of those students, by the way, 15 years later are in this church. And the only reason they're in this church is not because of, of an encouragement, because there was a bond built, right? A bond built in which we started journeying in life together with some of those students where there was relationships built. There's a, there's some people started journeying with us and there was encouragement happening and discipleship occurring. And so for a lot of us, we didn't even know what to do. And I'm saying, what if you just started with encouragement? It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Fourth thing, what if you encourage someone? Then what if you, what if you prayed for them? What if you covered someone in encouragement and prayer? Look at what Jesus in his relationship with Peter is like. Um, Listen to this, Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, which is Peter, of course. Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all like wheat. Say what? <laughs> That's what I would have been if I was like, Peter, like, what'd you say? He's asked to sift you like wheat. And then what did Jesus say? But I have prayed for you, Simon. 
that your faith may not fail. When Jesus knew that Satan wanted to go after Peter, he just said, don't worry, man, I prayed for you. Got you. How powerful is that? Encouragement and prayer. We all need this. We all, we all, just like Paul, you know, Paul's life, if you've read the stories, he had a Barnabas in his life and he had a Timothy in his life. He probably had others too, but those are two we can speak to easily. We have someone, he had someone who was pouring into him and he had someone he was pouring into. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. To Tim, this is in 2 Timothy verse, or chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. You know what Paul gave to Timothy? He gave him more than just instruction. He gave him encouragement. You guys remember the verses? Don't, don't, let, it, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. You remember the verse? Hey, you don't have a spirit of fear, but you have one of power and love and self-control. Remember those passages in which Paul was constantly encouraging Timothy, and then he said, oh, and by the way, I'm praying for you night and day. I realize that we can't do it all. Jesus himself only discipled 12 and he lost one. It's not tens, it's just a handful. It's just a few at a time, even one at a time. But we need to find people in our life that we're going to invest in, that we're going to encourage and pray for, that we're going to invite on the journey with us. Be someone who's pouring your life into others. Not in a way where you burn out because you have no one pouring into you. You got to figure that out. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm just saying there's some things you got to figure out. You got to go find someone and say, hey, I respect the heck out of you. Can we spend some time together? Because I'd love to learn from you. You got to figure that out. And then you got to go and say, you know what? That person right there, I'm going I'm to invite them on the journey with me. This is the culture that Jesus was trying to build. And he has been building. And this is the culture that we need to be reminded of, that that's, that's the kingdom. That's what Jesus was saying when he says, I want you to love like I loved. I want you to live like I lived. I want you to do what I did. Now go and teach them everything I taught you. Because ultimately we want to become more like Jesus. So this is a weighty one from Jesus. Are you with me? Yeah? All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. So if you'd bow your heads. As your heads are bowed, I just want to encourage you with this. Um, this week, spend some time thinking about these four things. Inviting someone on a journey. Giving what you have. Encouraging and praying for someone. Think about those four things, but think about them with who could that be in your life. At some point this week, take some time and ask the Lord, who is someone that I can begin discipling? It isn't as complicated as we make it. Sometimes it's just a choice to say, I'm going to go do what Jesus said we should do. Father, I pray that we would be a church of disciples, that we'd be a church 
who knows what it means to take your commands um, to heart and to take them seriously, Lord. We just, we know that everything we do in life as a, that reflects your word is just a, it's just a response of saying, Lord, we, we love you. Your word says, if we love you, we'll obey what you command. And so, Father, in our obedience to the Great Commission, Lord, I, I, it's, just, it's just out of a response of love. The Father, you're so good to us, as we sang earlier today. And, Lord, we want to grow in our love for you. And, Lord, we want that to transform who we are. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.